Hi, and welcome to the Newberry Chronicles. This is a podcast in which two people read through every Newberry medal-winning book, and then we talk about it. I'm Michael. And I'm Rebecca. And this time, we are talking about the 2023 medal winner. We're so up-to-date um, until, in a month or two, they announce the 2024 winner. Correct. Um, but the 2023 Newberry medal winner uh, is called Free Water by Amina Lukman Dawson. Is that how you pronounce your name? That's how I pronounce it. All right. I thought so. Um, Anyway, before we do that, though, as has become our new habit, we're going to talk about books we've been reading recently. Um, Rebecca, you always have a lot of books that you've been reading, so tell us about them. I just finished You Can Make This Place Beautiful, which is by Maggie Smith, not Dame Maggie Smith, but the American poet Maggie Smith, and this is a memoir really that focuses largely on um, life after her divorce and finding out about her husband's infidelity. And I listened to this one. This is one I wish I would have read physically because um, she is a poet, and so she says a lot of poetic things. She's a poet, and you know it. Right. And I would like to reread some of those things or look at passages again, um, as you can when you have a physical copy, and it's much more difficult when you are listening also, when I listen to audiobooks, I'm usually doing a lot of other things, and so that's easy for, like, a story, you know, but when it's something that's more artfully done, you, you miss out on things when you listen to that. Um, regardless, I'm so grateful to be listening to them because I probably wouldn't be reading them otherwise. So that memoir was really good. Um, it's very well written. I I have trouble, though, when I'm reading about when I'm reading like memoirs or stories, people's stories when their exes or their partners or their kids or whoever are still alive, because I just wonder, I don't know. What How it's, much they're lying. No, that's not what I mean. <laughs> I wonder what it's like for those people to have these words exist. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think her story's yeah, important and it's worth knowing, but I always wonder, I don't know. Other people didn't consent to those stories being told in that way when you're, like, a famous author. I think about this with, like, musicians all the time. You know, like, they're they're creating art out of their lives. And write what you know. You make beautiful things that way. But I do think people get hurt along the way, you know. And so, anyway, just... What you're saying is Maggie Smith is the new Taylor Swift. Well, I, I was thinking of Taylor when I said musicians. But I... They they need to make great art, and I think that she did that. And I think that she tells her story in a way that's very accessible for other people that have gone through, like, a divorce or any kind of separation, whether there's infidelity or not. Um, she very beautifully describes, like, the, the push and pull of, I wish this wouldn't have happened, and I am grateful for my children. And it's not an either-or. It's not a but. It's not a... Well, I wish I wouldn't have got divorced, but I have my children. It's acknowledging the pain and that joy and that love right there side by side. And you, you are constantly, like, pulled between those two. So I think, I think that book was really great. Um, I don't mean to be negative about it. I also read Beautiful Country by Chan Julie Wong, which is another memoir. This is um, Chan and her family um, immigrated from China in the 90s. And so this was her story of her family trying to figure out life in America, um, which was deeply sad. Um, also, 
very moving the way that she told her story and um, her childhood. I also loved that this all happened in the 90s because there were a lot of like cultural references that I got. I was telling Michael, there was like a, a TV show that she mentioned, Puzzle Place, which is a PBS show that I watched as a kid that I didn't think anyone else remembered, but she loved it so much. And there was a Chinese character on Puzzle Place named Julie, and that's where she got she chose that American name for herself because she identified with her. So I, there was just a lot of nostalgia in that for me. Um, also, I just think it's really powerful when you can tell your own story about your childhood and about immigration and about life in America. Um, and you know, we've been working with some immigrants like this whole year pretty closely in our home, and so it's just nice to hear her perspective of, like, bringing things to light about things that we've kind of been watching happen in real time, um, but obviously very different circumstances. Um, I read two Louise Penny books. I'm reading through her um, Inspector Gamache series. I read uh, A Fatal Grace and The Cruelest Month. Those books are really fun. I'm about to finish another one of hers right now. Um, They're all murder mysteries. They're pretty easy to read and go through and they're also really great audiobooks because the um guy that reads them is really good i really like his voice what's his name i can't remember i need to i need to figure it out but i got really upset at the beginning of this book because the guy that introduced it was not the same voice and i was about to like get really upset but then he came through i was there for that tense 30 seconds you were there um I read, so last episode I talked about reading um, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Berendt, which I loved. I read his other book, um, The City of Falling Angels, which is about Venice, and that book was very good. It does not compare, honestly, to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, just because, um, obviously, like, the setting is different. You can't you can't count on a murder happening in every you know like place he goes. Wouldn't that to. be uncomfortable if everywhere he went there was a murder? He ended up He'd covering be like it in Inspector real time. Gamache in Louise Penny's books. But this story was more um, like meandering in a way that didn't really come together in the end. But it was still I really enjoyed learning about Venice and um, the history that the research really that he goes through and lives there and. Um, He's writing about characters that he's, like, interviewed in person, which I think is really cool. Um, uh, we read The Mouse and the Motorcycle. Well, we listened to it with our son, Jarvis, um, by Beverly Cleary. And that's one Cleary book that I had never read before, and we, we really enjoyed that. And Jarvis enjoyed Ralph, so we'll be reading some more Ralph in our Jarvis future. Jarvis being our son. Yes. To anyone who's listening who doesn't know us personally, which I think is nobody, but... right. I listened to The Dutch House by Ann Patchett, which was so good. Ann Patchett is, um, I think, my new favorite author that I've read this year. She is just fantastic. And The Dutch House was especially good because Tom Hanks read the audiobook. So that was super how fun. Did they, how did they nag that? I don't know, but it was super good. I loved it. Are you that sure book. it wasn't his brother? I listened to this podcast one time about how his brother. It does was, the voice acting that Tom Hanks doesn't want to do when they want someone who wants to sound, who sounds like Tom Hanks? Well, though? they said it was him, and it well, sounded like him. Well, so, it could have um, been. I don't remember his brother's name. But Ann Patchett is so good, you guys. If you need to read an author who 
tells a really fantastic story, but also has beautiful prose and dialogue. And and has a good ni- a nice bookstore yes, in Nashville. Yes, has a wonderful bookstore in Nashville where she recognizes local artists and signs all of her books. Um, read Ann Patchett and go to Parnassus Books because it's fantastic. Um, I didn't really tell you anything about that book, but it's good because we need to get on with this. And last but certainly not least. Certainly not least. I read Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. This was my first time. I never read this as a kid. Michael and I went and saw the movie when it came out, and it was incredible. So I was like, I'm going to read the book. And it did not disappoint, you guys. It was so good. And you could read it in a day because I listened to it in a day. And it was fantastic. So that is my list. Great. Over to you. Well, normally, I don't have as many books as Rebecca, and I also don't have as many books as Rebecca this time, but I have more books than usual because it's been winter break, and I've been reading a bit more. Uh, So since our last episode, which I'm realizing is almost two months ago, we need to pick up the pace here on this podcast. I know. Once upon a time, we released once every two weeks, but um, anyway, in the two months since this podcast's last hit the the internet i've read several books um i read this book called mother slash land um which is a a book of poetry by ananda lima um kind of providentially it was just sent to me in the mail i pre-ordered my friend's poetry collection and i think like as a a shout out to your friend who's your friend josh garcia go get his i don't think it's coming out until the 2024 but um Josh Garcia, my friend from college, um, has a poetry collection coming out, and I pre-ordered it, and the publisher just sent me a, uh, a book. That's cool. Um, I don't know why they did that, but they did it, and so I read it, um, and it was actually really interesting. Um, Ananda Lima um, writes bilingual poetry. Um, she, I believe, is from Brazil, and then she, she is definitely an immigrant to the United States, um, and she is, uh, writing poetry in both English and Portuguese, and so it, like, switches between the two, um, and I don't know Portuguese, um, however, it's structured such that you don't really need to know Portuguese, you can kind of, like, infer certain things, or, like, get, get the gist of it, um, and it's really interesting, like, she does, um, a lot of really interesting stuff mixing those two languages together, um, in a way that's evocative of a lot of the themes of the collection, which have to do with, um, you know, feeling like a displaced person within a country that's not your home and, like, uh, trying to inhabit a language that doesn't feel like your own. And um, she has a, I believe it's a daughter who is, um, base- has basically grown up exclusively in America. And so there's, like, that kind of disconnect between, like, a first-generation American and the immigrant parent. Um but it was good. You know, I don't read a ton of poetry, um, but I do occasionally, and um, this was a good one. I'm glad it was sent to me, because it's something that probably would not have been on my radar otherwise. So uh, thanks for that. You know, maybe if... I'm not saying that, um, you know, publishers should just mail out books free of charge, but I certainly wouldn't um, disagree with that if they did it more often to me. Um, all the other books are from the library, though, which is the other way that publishers give you books free of charge. Um, go support your local library. Um, 
So I read uh, a book called Terrace Stories by Hilary Leicher. Leicher? L-E-I-C-H-T-E-R. Lichter? I don't know. Come on, Hilary. Because I didn't listen to it on audiobook. I don't know how to pronounce things. Um, and this is a pretty interesting book. I just picked it up from the library. Uh, at the end of every year, I try to like make sure that I've read like a couple of books that have been released in the year rather than just reading older books. Um, and so I just went on... I don't remember if this is New York Times or NPR or whatever, but I found a list of like the best books of 2023, and this was one of them, and it was at our library, and I got it. And it's short. It's like under 200 pages or maybe about 200 pages. And it takes a few turns, um, and by the end, it's something much different. Um, but basically what it begins as is this couple um, move into this tiny apartment in, I think, New York, some big city where, you know, space is at a premium. And um, they invite this friend from work over, and they find that whenever this friend from work comes to their house, or their apartment, um, all of a sudden, a new door that they've never seen before appears in their apartment. When they open it up, it's this lovely little terrace that they can then spend the afternoon in outdoors. Um, and so, even though they're not especially close with this coworker, they start... Um, like uh, manufacturing ways to have her come over more often because they really like having this terrace um, and they get really close to this coworker and then things progress from there in kind of surprising ways and it it becomes this strange little like parallel universe story but that's also like I mean it's definitely like literary fiction so you have like you know a big emphasis on like characters and kind of meditative ruminative stuff um, and kind of like philosophical ideas about like personhood and like, what it means to have a connection with somebody and, like, that sort of thing. Um, it was pretty good. Um, and then I read this book called Ascension by Nicholas Binge. Binge? I don't know, again. Um, <laughs> because I didn't listen to it on audiobook. Um, this this book was okay. Um, it was basically a sci-fi book about, I, I guess, less science fiction. Well, kind of science fiction. Um, where this enormous mountain, like, you know, many times the size of Mount Everest suddenly appears in the Pacific Ocean. And this person who is a, um, oh, what is his field? Um, I think he's a, um, he's a, he's from the medical profession, I believe. Um, he goes on this expedition to try to figure out what this mountain is. And it ends up being this, like, um, kind of metaphysical exploration of um, the existence of God and, like, faith and dealing with past traumas and things like that. It, it really reminded me of, I've not read the book, but I saw the movie of, um, um, oh, shoot. Um, what was it called? I have the book on, oh, Annihilation. The book Annihilation, which I've not read, but... Um, I saw I saw the movie. And it reminded me heavily of the movie of Annihilation in the sense of, you know, they go deeper and deeper into this expedition, and stranger and stranger things keep happening. And they make contact with like, you know, unknown alien things. Um, and I just, uh, it was okay. Like there were things about it that were interesting, but by the end, when you reach the end and you kind of have everything explained, um, it's. I don't know. I, it didn't really hold together. It's one of those books that's kind of intriguing and pulls you along, but by the end you reach, you know, the final page and 
you look back over it and think, that was just okay. Um, anyway, uh, that was the last book I finished, and currently I'm almost done with this book, um, which I think is, of the ones that I've mentioned, my favorite. Uh, it's called Looking Glass Sound uh, by Catriona Ward. Um, and this is a really interesting book. Um, it's like a thriller. Um, it doesn't initially appear to be a thriller. It appears to be like a coming-of-age story um, where this kid named Wilder, who's been like picked on or whatever, um, his uncle dies, and his uncle had a house on... Um, it feels like some main fishing village or something like that. It's like an East Coast fishing village. Um, that's also kind of like a summer touristy place. Um, and so he and his family go in before they decide to sell this house, they go and spend the summer here. And so he gets to know people or whatever. But, um, while they're there, they find out about, um, this kind of like growing kind of like urban legend, but not really urban legend. Cause these are really things that are happening. Um, threat of what, what the locals call the dagger man, um, where, um, there will be Polaroids of sleeping children, like identifiable sleeping children that people know with like knives to their, like a dagger to their neck. Uh, and so everyone is wondering who's this man who's, or they assume it's a man, but um, who's this person who's sneaking into houses in this quaint little village and taking Polaroids of knives to children's throats. Um, and so there's that kind of like lingering over the course of the book and that eventually explodes um, about like 25% of the way through the book. And from there, it really takes some turns. Like, this is a book that has some wild turns. Um, it's initially a coming-of-age novel, um, a little bit about, like, the kind of crush that um, this uh, protagonist is having with some of the locals. Um, but it eventually, like, takes turns into becoming, like, uh, a metafiction uh, about, like, the writing of the book itself. Uh, and uh, about, like, uh, different characters' descents into what may be madness or what may be actually people playing tricks on them or, you know, something supernatural going on or whatever. It, it's been a really entertaining read, and I'm not done with it yet, but I've really enjoyed it so far, um, and I'm pretty close to done. So um, that's what I've been reading. All right. Well, let's talk about Amina Lukman Dawson. Yeah, free water. So, um, Rebecca, you researched her, right? Yes. So, she was born in New York City, but she was raised in Linwood, California, with her parents and her three siblings. She loved writing and reading as a kid, um, but she got her, um, I should say and, she got her BA in political science from Vassar and a master's in public policy from Berkeley. And during her work, she began combining her love for words and public policy, and she started writing opinion pieces for newspapers. She has been she has written op-eds for the Washington Post and the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, she's also written journal articles, um, book reviews, and some travel writing. She moved to Petersburg, Virginia, with her husband Robert, and while she was there. She learned a lot about their, the rich African-American history in Petersburg, but realized that there wasn't a really good book that described that history in an accessible way. So she wrote one herself. She did a lot of research, and she interviewed um, a lot of the people that lived there. And she wrote a um, pictorial history book that was called Images of America, African-Americans of Petersburg. 
and that was her first uh, published work other than what she had written in magazines and newspaper articles. Oh, so this wasn't free water. I was assuming you were building the free water no, here. No, she wrote a, a pictorial history book. And I don't remember the year that it was published, but it is about Petersburg, Virginia. Um, right after it was published, oh, so this would have been like 14 years ago. So right after it was published, she gave birth to her now 14-year-old son, Zach. And as, you know, with, with her child, she and her husband would read him a lot of books. Um, and that really allowed her to return to reading children's literature. And during that whole process, she began to dream and think about stories she wanted to write for her own son. And that's where she began creating Free Water, which I thought was really sweet. You know, just sweet. like re-engage, which that's one thing that I've been so grateful about with our own kids is being able to share stories with them, but also the time that we've been able to spend going back to children's literature and just devoting a lot of time and energy to them and just knowing the importance of what stories are being told and how they're being told. And for her to be like, you know, I want my kid to have great stories too, so I'm just going to write one. I thought that was really beautiful. Um, Free Water was her first novel, which is incredible, that she... And, and she, it was a New York Times bestseller. This isn't the first author that we've had whose first novel was the New, Newbery Medal, right? No. Who was the other one? Continue talking. I'm going to research it was this. The, I think it was... Who wrote um, The Mix-Up Files? Yeah, actually, that was I what I was, was guessing. Uh, E.L. Konigsberg. Um, anyway, keep talking. I feel like there's been a few, but um, this novel was not only a New York Times bestseller, but it also won the Newbery Medal and the Coretta Scott King Award. And she is the first black woman to win both the Newbery and the Coretta Scott King Book Award. So I thought that As was really update, cool. As an update, it was not E.L. Konigsberg oh, okay. who had a book before um, Mixed Up Files. Well, and the last fact I have about her is that she lives currently in Arlington, Virginia. Swank. So. Um, okay. Well, um, so it's my turn to tell everybody oh, what... Oh, also, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. If you need to know, she likes vanilla ice cream with caramel topping. Interesting. That was on her author page. That wouldn't have been what I chose for ice cream, but I guess I'm not a Newbery Medal winning author. You know, let's be... She's a simple I wonder woman. if she's like my mom and has brand preferences. Probably. Is it Bluebell homemade vanilla with caramel topping? I don't know. What do people eat in Arlington, Virginia? Expensive ice cream. Um, Maybe she goes to... Um, well, that place in um, Georgetown. Georgetown that we go to. Yeah, I don't remember Thomas the name Sweet. of it. Thomas Sweet. Shout out to Bougie <laughs> Ice Cream in D.C. Um, anyway, the, the problem with me recounting the plot of this book is that I finished this book maybe three weeks ago. Um, it's my fault, guys. I'm not specifically blaming Rebecca, who had a lot going on otherwise, but I am using that as an excuse for any shortcomings that I have of the plot. So, Rebecca, please correct me um, if I'm wrong. So, Free Water takes place during um, the antebellum era in, is it North Carolina? Where is this yes. supposed to be? It's North, North Carolina. Carolina. Um, so, um, the book opens with um, two kids... Um, running away from the plantation because they're black and um, they've been enslaved. Their whole family is enslaved. Their mom is in the plantation um, and, and many other people as well. Um, and they successfully run away, um, but in the course of running away, they find themselves in the swamp, which is how they manage to run away um, because the, the people can't find them anymore. 
because they have been swept by a river or a stream into the swamp. Um, and uh, the names of these kids are Homer, who um, basically is our protagonist, although the book shifts point of views each chapter, uh, or many chapters it switches point of view. So we have many point of view characters, but Homer's the one we stick to mostly. Uh, and then Ada, uh, who's his little sister. And um, their mom is also trying to escape, but she got caught. Um, and so Homer and Ada are, are just kids alone in this swamp, um, and their mother's taken back and horribly beaten, and, you know, it's, um, you know, really awful. And her, the mom, has to, whose name is Rose, has to stay back at the plantation, and the kids are in the swamp. And the kids eventually find um, a bunch of other free black people in the swamp, uh, in this uh, cleverly hidden little town uh, in the middle of the swamp uh, called Freewater, that's basically um, populated by a combination of people who have escaped slavery um, and also people who were simply born here. Um, like, there are some kids the, the same age as uh, Homer and Ada who are um, basically natives to free water and have never known a life um, in which uh, they were enslaved. And in fact, because they've spent most of their life or their entirety of their life in free water, only have a very abstract concept of what slavery is and why they have to be hidden in this town. Um, one of the kids' names is Sansi. Um, another kid's name is Billy, who Sansi kind of takes care of because Billy is a little bit like, um, I guess he's like kind of physically weak and doesn't really like, you know, um, have the same sort of ambition as Sansi, who wants to be like this like great explorer, warrior character, like Suleiman, who is kind of the, um, he's the character who eventually finds uh, Billy and Aiden takes them to free water, I should say. Uh, who's So he's like, Suleiman is like this big warrior guy. Um, so a big chunk of the book is Billy and Ada kind of acclimating themselves to free water. Um, and then Homer also... Homer and Ada. Excuse me, Homer and Ada acclimating themselves to free water and learning about what life is like. And for Homer and Ada, they're kind of the opposite of Sansi in the sense of they've never known life where they weren't enslaved. And so this life of being free in free water uh, is a little bit new to them. Um, and um, But their family is not here. Um, you know, uh, their mother, Rose, is still uh, at the plantation. So Homer wants to find her and, and get her to free water. Also, uh, they had a friend who they're not technically related to, but we're very close to her, Anna, uh, still at the plantation as well, and they Which, feel... Did you explain that's the whole reason his mom went back? No, I forgot. Uh, the, the, so the mother um, got caught because she had to go back and get Anna um, during because the escape. Because Homer wanted her to. Right, and because Homer had made like a pact with Anna about how they were going to stay together and stuff like that. Uh, and so Anna and Rose are still at the plantation, um, and then uh, Homer and Ada are at Freewater. Um, Sanzi is this kind of like, um, you know, uh, getting a little cabin fever, never been outside of free water, kind of wants to, you know, have an adventure. And so... Um, and she's fascinated by... You said his name's Suleiman. That's not how I read his name, but I don't... I, but How did you pronounce his I name? I thought it was like Solomon, like Solomon, but with a U. It's S-U-L-E-M-A-N. Yeah. Um, Regardless... She is fascinated by him because he will... He's like this like powerful man who's a free spirit and can like appear... He's also the one that 
he's like founded free water with some of the other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like an elder of the free water. And he goes back and forth to plantations and steals like tools and other supplies and also helps to bring enslaved people to freedom. And so he is one that will go back and forth a lot. And Sanzi is just fascinated by him and, and basically wants to be him. Right. Now, there's a lot of characters in this book, and the plot is fairly simple but becomes complicated at moments and the reason it becomes complicated is because all these little characters have their things going on so i'm going to do a brief rundown of some of the other characters um so we have ferdinand who is also in free water and he's kind of like this mean kid at first he's he's initially presented as kind of like this bully who's always like you know um taunting sansi and things like that you eventually learn more about him and why he feels that way um and he eventually becomes something of an ally. There's also Two Shoes, who is a man um, who has recently escaped from the same plantation as um, Ada and Homer. Um, He's renamed himself Turner. Renamed himself Turner, but they call him Two Shoes. Um, and because of, I don't remember, reasons that have to do with the because plantation. Because right? the plantation owner gave him shoes. Like he was like a big buddy of the right. plantation owner and was like really loyal to him. And he gave him shoes. So he is kind of at, at different parts doing different things in the book, but initially kind of like Homer trying to like, you know, figure out his way in free water. And eventually there's complications um, that have to do with his connections back to the plantation. Um, I've already mentioned Sansi and Billy and Suleiman, um, but also parallel um, to them, um, and all the people who are in free water is we occasionally flip back to the plantation. Um, and we have Anna, I've already mentioned, and Rose. Uh, we don't actually see too much of Rose, who is, like, basically after she's beaten, seems like nearly to death, um, but not quite to death. Is She's, like, bedridden for a bunch of the book. And Anna has to take care of her. And Anna is, like, really upset that she didn't get to leave I mean, I, I mean, I, as as is understandably, she's still enslaved, um, and so she begins plotting ways that she can escape, and she's hatch, hatching this big plan that's going to allow everybody to escape um, by basically poisoning the the plantation, um, and so she's like gathering the supplies that she needs to to do that. Um, at the same time, you have Nora, who's a white kid. Um, plantation owner's daughter. The plantation owner's daughter, um, who is fairly close to the enslaved folks they have on the plantation, and is kind of awakening to the fact of, like, wow, this is a really kind of awful thing that we've done to these people. Um, but her, is it her sister, is about to be married? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, like, preparations that she has to help with in the plantation for um, the marriage of her sister, but this is thrown into disarray when there's this uh, attempted escape by all these people, um, with Homer and Ada being the ones who end up escaping. Um, And that's kind of where she is initially shown, like, how awful slavery is, because she sees, like, all the people being beaten. Uh, She sees how callous, like, everyone is, and the only thing they care about is that this wedding is going to be ruined. Um, There's this, like, a a slave catcher. His name is... um, Do you remember the slave catcher? He's really sadistic, and she... like that? Stokes. Stokes, yeah. And she spends some time with him and kind of... Anyway, she's basically getting woke um, (laughs) 
to the you know to the uh, to the fact of the, that her her life at the plantation is propped up by this horrible system, and so she becomes discontented with it and begins to kind of plot ways to kind of undermine it and let, pe- let let some of the slaves escape and things like that. Specifically, Rose. Yeah, who she is very close to. She loves Rose. And Rose else. Rose um, was her wet nurse, in fact, yes. when she grew up. Um, she had to wean her own son so that she could feed this baby. Right. Isn't it's guys, awful. It's awful. And this is real history. That's what's so terrible about it. Regardless, another thing that's important to know about Nora is she has this um like a strawberry mark on a lot of her face. So she already feels like an outcast in her family who is very focused on image and prestige and that sort of thing. She doesn't quite fit in, which I think is like a way to kind of help us understand why she might have more empathy than other people in the book. She feels like an outcast herself. She does not like her mother. She thinks her sister is frivolous. Um, and also they don't like her very much. She doesn't fit within their picture-perfect plan of a family. Right. Um, regardless, all these threads eventually come together in a fairly linear way. Like, it's it's been a lot to explain, but as you're reading, it's not really that complicated. Um, uh, and it comes to a head, and, you know, things happen, and, you know, you'll have to read the book to see what, what uh, ends up going on with that. But uh, that's, that's basically the plot of Free Water. How did I do, Rebecca? You did pretty good. For having not read the book in three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, what do you like about this book, Rebecca? I liked many things about this book. Um, I had no idea that communities like this existed. In yeah, neither the did I. South. And um, Lukeman Dawson has like an author's note in the back that talks about these communities that were called Maroons, I believe. And she... This book is, is, she says, this story is entirely from my imagination, but it's based on things that she's learned from communities that existed specifically in the Great Dismal Swamp, which this book could have existed in Virginia, I guess, because the swamp, it, it like, it stretches from Virginia to North Carolina. Yeah, it's like in that, that region. It's like south east, right? Yeah. Is that so what basically, these swamps were uninhabitable to your average person, um, People didn't want to venture into the swamps, but enslaved people would escape there and live off the land and form communities um, that were completely free and that, you know, white people didn't want to venture into. And she talks about how indigenous people, like American indigenous people, first um, would live in these swamps. And so some of the um, enslaved people would find their tools and live off the land like they did. And so... I, number one, appreciated learning that places like this existed. And it was so nice to read a story about black people escaping slavery that is not entirely centered around black trauma, you know, and and looking at a community of people that didn't just escape to the racist North where they were going to be oppressed in other ways and silenced in other ways. And um, all of that is important. Please don't hear me, you know, diminish the incredible yeah, Rebecca stories hates of people. The Underground Railroad. No, please don't hear me say that. But I'm just saying to read a story about a community of people that said, no, we're going to create something right here that is just for enslaved souls and their children who we are going to be free to, to try to create a world 
that is so close to the one that they're in, but entirely separated from that, I thought was very moving. And I think it's really important for these stories of resistance to be told, um, like I said, where the story doesn't center entirely on black trauma. And much of it does not take place on the plantation, which is what I was kind of preparing myself for. I was like, okay, here we go. But, you know, like... I, I really enjoyed all of the scenes that were in Free Water because it's such a different world, and um, I, I thought it was really beautiful what they've done there. Um, I love that when the people come to Free Water, they rename themselves. Um, I just think it's really important that people, you know, who especially been through extreme trauma can take control of their own narratives and identities, and I thought that was really neat. Um, Sanzi and um, her sister, what was her name? Jude, Judah? What was her sister's name? Judah. You're asking Judah. The wrong person. Judah. Her older sister, Judah. Their mom has renamed herself Mrs. That's her first name, which she's giving herself the respect and the honor that she was never given. And I thought that was yeah, funny. Yeah, I, I thought that was funny because I have a joke with my students. If they ask me my first name, I say it's Mr. Oh, okay. I see. But yeah, so um, me, me and uh, this brave woman who <laughs> fled <laughs> slavery are exactly the same. I also really loved that there is no corporal punishment in this book except on the plantation at the hands of the plantation owners. So Sanzi, when she goes to the plantation to help um, get supplies and rescue the people, is she is shocked when she sees physical violence. And I think Lupman Dossman has created a world in which parents intentionally distance themselves from the acts of their oppressors in the way that they raise their children. And I thought that that was really powerful. I kept bracing myself for a child to receive some type of like physical discipline which historically is all over children's literature, and it's it's not here. I think, number one, this book is published in um, 2022, which, you know, that you don't, you don't see a lot of that in books anymore, but it would have been historically accurate, you know, yeah. for like, it was like kids a thematic to be, choice. Right. I think it was a thematic choice, and I also think it's incredible. You know, these are parents that are like, no, we are going to create a world for our kids, in which physical violence doesn't exist. And I thought that was beautiful. Um, and I just, I think it's really important for us to take that out of our, our literature for our kids, honestly. Um, I also really loved the subplot of Two Shoes. I think his story is really powerful. And he has this quote, I'm going to butcher it, but he's talking to Homer and he says something along the lines of, like, they don't keep you here um, she's talking about, like, the slave owners. Um, they don't keep you here by, like, how they abuse us. It's They make you love something, and that's how they keep you here. And I thought that was a really powerful statement, especially within his story. Um, but, yeah, those are some of the things that I liked. What did you like? I like some of those same things. I think, for me, the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway from the book is the thing you mentioned first, which is just never having learned about... Um, or, or or even been aware of the fact that there were communities of formerly enslaved people who, rather than flee north or out of the country or whatever, um, simply found ways to to like you know have communities where they where they were and found ways to be you know relatively stable and safe and you know become autonomous. 
um, within the the world that not within the world that they knew because I guess they knew being enslaved, but within the same geographic area, you know, there's I guess there's a kind of like totalizing, essentializing idea in history that we have where we have the enslaved South and the free North. And it's it's always interesting to find the ways in which that, that's complicated by, you know, real, real acts of resistance and bravery, you know. And I thought that was the coolest thing about the book is just learning about that having existed. Um, I like the other things that you mentioned as well, although um, as we'll get into later, I don't think I'm quite as positive on this book as you are for a variety of reasons, but none of which really have to do with things that you mentioned. Like, I agree that those are all good things about yeah, the book. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of the thematic things that I really appreciated. Yeah, this is a book with tremendous intentions, and I think that those intentions are the things I latched on to. Um, and it makes sense that she's coming out of a background of nonfiction to me, because um, a lot of what I latched on to in this book were the implications of on like our understanding of history or the implications on like you know what you know what can we learn from this or or, or those sorts of things um, and I think that it can be valuable to present those things in a narrative format I guess um, even though as we'll get into I think the narrative format is fairly weak um, so I guess we can pivot to what didn't you what didn't work about this book for you Rebecca yeah so her framing device, or I don't know if you even call it that, but she, um, I guess it is her framing device. She switches between different perspectives of children throughout the book, which I d- I'm not against. Not just children. There's some adults too, Mm-mm. right? There's Isn't, no adults. I thought um, Stokes got a chapter at least. Um, hold on. Keep talking. I'm going to prove you wrong in a second. Keep talking. <laughs> okay. Good luck. Yeah. Thanks. Anyway, she switches between the perspectives of the children. Uh-huh. Oh, Stokes, shoot. chapter 14. Seriously? Yeah, but regardless, it's mostly children. Okay, I well, just wanted to be technically I correct. I thought the reason why we're not hearing a lot from the adults is because she was intentionally just doing the children. Well, now that makes me mad. Anyway, so she switches back and forth between these points of view um, a lot. But all the voices sound the same. There's no real distinction there. And I don't think it's... If if the voices aren't going to be distinct, I think she could have just told the story with, like, an omniscient narrator rather than these. But the other thing that's weird to me is that Homer is clearly the main character. I don't really know why. Well, because he but, escapes. Yeah, but and I he's mean, like... like the audience we surrogate say he's the, the, the main character, but, like... It's kind of underdeveloped how he's the main character versus people like Sanzi, where you also see a lot of like her story. Anyway, Homer's perspective is the only one that's written in first person, like a first person narrator. The rest are these third person narrators, but told from that person's perspective. Yeah, I don't really get why Homer has a first person narrator if we're switching to right. other perspectives. It doesn't make sense to me why his is the first, and I don't really get very much more out of that than I do with the like third person voices. So I just feel like that part of it is kind of weak and it it also like in the beginning it was kind of exhausting um to me. Anyway, I don't I I just feel like that part is it's, there's no real distinction there, which I think is important if you're going to do that. Um, this book 
reads to me a lot like a screenplay rather than a novel. I think this this story would make an incredible movie. And I think sometimes Luke Dawson writes it like it is a movie. What do you mean by that? Like... I think I know what you mean, but just explain it more. Well, it's hard for me to, to explain it. Um, she does... She relies heavily on dialogue, which is one thing, um, to tell the story. When I think a book gives you freedom to not just rely on dialogue, like provide descriptive language, which she doesn't do a ton of, um, provide some insight from the narrator, which she doesn't do a lot of. Um, a lot of the story is told through her characters, which I think would make a great movie. And when they're entering Freewater, you know when you're in a movie and you're seeing a lot of stuff and none of it makes sense until the people talk? She does that. Like, she'll... As they're getting into free water, nothing's making sense. And then all of a sudden they see free water and they're like, this is free water with no explanation of what it is until you get it later on in the dialogue. And that to me very much read like a movie. Like I could see it, but not because like, I don't, I'm not explaining it very well, but that's, that's what I mean. I just think, um, I just think if you're if you're writing a novel, you have a lot of freedom in how you tell the story in different ways, and I don't think she fully utilizes that that um, form of art, if that makes sense. Um, I could see this be made into a movie. Is it? Are you no, I was actually just Googling that. I was like, I wonder if this has been optioned for a movie. I don't see anything. I would also just want to see a documentary about communities like this that existed. But anyway, I could see both those things happening, and I would definitely go to them and see that. Um, and I, my other, my real complaint about the plot is Anna's story just sort of falls off the map. She has this, like, weird scar that there's no explanation for. She thinks her mom gave it to her to point to North. She doesn't know who her mom is. Um, she's never met her. The end of the book just is her running off to the north. So she doesn't even get to free water with everybody else. And it's like, I, I'm hoping that she's writing a sequel because she kind of sets herself up to do that with Anna's story, which I would read and be interested in. But if she's not going to write a sequel... I don't really know why she did that with Anna's story. Like, it just sort of, like, falls off. And it's yeah, not... that's true. I had actually forgotten about the stuff with the scar until you mentioned it. Yeah. Like, I... I wish she... I want her to write a sequel to tell us more about her story. But even if she does, I think she could have just saved that part for that book. You know what I mean? It just sounds like she started a lot and couldn't wrap it all up by the end. But... Yeah. That's all that I dislike. I co-sign all that. Um, I don't think this is a good novel. And I, I say that having admired a lot of the other stuff that Rebecca already mentioned in the positives. But I think like when you get down to like the brass tacks of just like technical like novel building stuff, I just don't think this does this works. Um, I all the stuff you mentioned about the point of view is is completely accurate like we have all these different points of view but it's unclear why we have these different points of view when they all sound the same and when they all sound boring like the the prose is very flat uh it is increasing or it is incredibly reliant on dialogue that not just doesn't just like act like a movie but like acts like exposition 
I also, and this is not a deal breaker because many books do this that are historical, but I found the characters and the way that they speak aggressively modern in a way that like was distracting to me. Like these did not sound like people from the 19th century. Yeah, I had thought about that and too now, but you're right. It, that shouldn't really matter because you should make the novel feel like, you know, you can inhabit the world of the novel rather than having to inhabit the real history. But because so much of the novel is flat, like this on like any of the characters sound like they could have just tumbled out of any kind of middle grade to YA fiction. Like they all talk like all kind of generic characters in like contemporary, you know, young adult fiction. Um and I just there's just so like I was so bored to be honest like and the plot should be interesting on paper but the way it is dramatized like first of all the switching of perspectives back and forth it should create this like cross-cutting effect where there's like building tension because you see all the different pieces coming together but I found it really jumbled there's not a lot of craft in like what's juxtaposed with what and so you'll get like for instance the beginning of the book you keep getting these chapters that are headed with Homer because that's how it'll tell you whose perspective the book is in is it'll tell the character's name. And I spent forever trying to figure out why is Homer's name at the beginning of every chapter when he's already the narrator. And it's just very artless because you, you have like all these chapters in a row about Homer and then you eventually switch to somebody else. And by that time, it just like kills the momentum to switch out of Homer's perspective because that's what's been building this whole time. And no one gets the same treatment as Homer but the problem is Homer has so he's such a flat character. Um, he has one tension and one tension only, which is I gotta go back and save my mom. And which, Anna. And Anna. And that's like a valuable t- and a reasonable he tension feels to have, but he's so guilt too. He feels incredible guilt that his mom is not with him because he was the one that wanted to go back for Anna and he said she said, No, I'm gonna go back. So the book tells us that he has incredible guilt, but in terms of how things unfurl, in terms of how the book is narrated, there's nothing dramatized about that, right? Like he could feel the same he could if he were a person who said, I wanna go back and save my mama because I wanna be a hero versus I wanna go back and save my mom and Anna because I feel guilt. The book would have existed in the exact same way there's nothing about the book that is specific to his guilt or dramatizes anything to do with his guilt it is simply mentioned that he has guilt and there that that is so much of the book you know there's like this creative writing cliche at this point where it says show don't tell and the idea behind that is that you shouldn't have to tell the audience everything that they're supposed to be thinking about um you should be able to show that through characters actions or characters' descriptions, or things like that. And this book simply does not show anything. It tells everything. Like, a char- if a character is feeling something, you get it in one of two ways. The character either says it out loud to another character, or the character thinks it, and the book tells you that the character thinks it. You know, like, so, like, for instance, with Homer's guilt, we hear, because he says it to, to Ada, and he also thinks it quite a bit about his guilt, and that he wants to go back and save his mom, but there's nothing in the way that the character acts that is, like, dealing with the complexity of what those feelings must have been. I disagree with that, but continue. I don't know. I just I just feel like there's so much there's so much conflict in this book. Like, this book has so much, like, interesting conflict, but the, the, the practice of actually playing out that conflict is so flat to me. And mostly that comes down to the prose style. And, I mean, it makes complete sense that the author comes out of nonfiction because what this book feels like to me 
is someone who really who found this really cool like historical narrative that no one talks about. And I think that is very cool, the maroon communities. And she wanted to tell it and she thought, what is the best way to tell that story so that people will pay attention to it? It is through a novel rather than through a nonfiction book. And especially I don't for kids. Especially for kids. However And she's right. She is right that more people will pay attention to it, but I don't think, based on this, her strengths actually lie in writing a novel. And yeah. I think that this, I think she could have written a much, much, much better book that would have been just a nonfiction book about this, these same ideas. And it would have been a much different book. And it's, there's not really a point in wishing that you had a different book. But well, like, also, there's not a lot of history written about these communities, you know? Like, there, there can't be. Yeah. That, yeah. It would anyway, have had to be a lot of oral. And so, I mean, that's also the other thing, too, is the most interesting part of the book for me is like, wow, I didn't know that these sorts of communities existed. But this book doesn't really inform you that much about them. It informs you about this one particular one that I guess is kind of archetypal for like all sorts of ones. But if you're looking for like, I want to learn about what maroon communities were like in real life, this book doesn't exactly do that because this book is so driven by, like as novels should, driven by plot and character conflict and that sort of thing. And that's great if those things are good, but I didn't think they were good. I, I thought they were dull and fairly straightforward in ways that I thought were flattening and uninteresting. Um, and all I wanted to learn about was the actual history of it, which this book kind of, by not being very descriptive, by not being very ornate with how it deals with everything, you, you learn about what free water is fairly early in the book, and that's basically all you learn about the history of it is that this sort of thing exists and here's how it exists. I don't think I I agree with that. I also think you don't really like historical fiction. I've heard you say similar things but other like I think you like I disagree. nonfiction. I disagree. For instance, we are currently reading a book called Sutri by Cormac McCarthy, which is historical fiction about Knoxville. But um, I that's... Here's what I'm going to say is I don't like historical fiction when the primary mode is to teach you about history because it feels like a frustrating way to go about it. It feels like eat a chocolate cake through a straw. Like that's not the utensil you want to use to eat a chocolate cake. I guess you like the grapes of wrath. And I like the grapes of wrath, which yeah. is not historical fiction, actually. That is contemporary fiction uh, for the 1930s. But oh, okay. um, I like Beloved, if we're talking about yeah. uh, slave escape, escape narratives, um, which is historical I fiction, say convention, like conventional patterns that like exist main, within mainstream a lot fiction. Of mainstream fiction, fiction is not built to teach history. Yeah, I don't think mainstream fiction is built to open doors to. That's intriguing. Let me go to Wikipedia or let me get a nonfiction book about that, and that's fine. But I end up always just feeling. I wish I had just jumped to Wikipedia or the nonfiction book rather than having. You Tell know. me what you, let me just, I know we're getting like late in the podcast, but I'm just interested to hear, what did you like about um, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry that you think is missing from this book? One, better prose. Okay. Two. Given, yes. Characters that are like really compelling. Yes. Like. And not, and, and not so many, or. Well, well, not so many, but also like characters who we find out their conflict and their psychologies, and the rest of the book teases that out in ways that actually develop it. Homer never develops. We learn at the beginning yeah. of the book that he wants to go save his mother and Anna, and he doesn't change the entire book. There's complications that get in his way to getting that, but like even like 
the discovery of free water barely changes him as a person because all he wants to do yeah, is go back and save his mother. And I that's true of so see, many characters. I think that's what I was trying to say about, like, I don't understand why he's the first person character because the people that we see more development with are Sanzi, yeah. Ferdinand, and Two Shoes, and Billy. Like, the book should have been, I, I will say this, the book should have been from the perspective of Two Shoes, which should not have worked for middle grade fiction because mm -mm. he's an adult and has a much darker story than some of the other people. Um I who are already who already have dark stories, but that is the character who undergoes like a really tense and and complex psychological journey. It reminds me of what the book does with him, and I mentioned this already. It reminds me of what the Harry Potter books do with Snape, who is mm -hmm. a character who is throughout the series constantly having this really complex psychological struggle that you only find out about in like literally the last couple chapters of the book. Um, and I think that the same thing is basically true of Two Shoes here, where at the end of the book, it reveals all this complexity that makes me wonder, why were we not given the door to this complexity much earlier? Because this would have been so interesting. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I'm sorry. Did I cut you off? There, no, it's fine. I've said, I've said what I need to say. I am still giving this book a thumbs up. I, I'm going to give this book a thumbs down, not because like I thought this book was horrible, but I've gotten, to, I've, I've reflected a lot about this, and I think <laughs> there, there are some times when I think a book's just okay, and I default to a thumbs up, because I like some sort of aspect about it, and that's true of this book. I thought it was just fine. Like, I liked elements of it. As negative as I've been in the last few minutes, like, I think it's overall fine. Like, it was not like a book that made me mad, or, you know, I disliked reading it or anything like that. I just didn't think it was that interesting, and but I was intrigued by the historical context and of the it. Theme, the themes, and the themes, I think, are really important, and it's really important for kids to read and know, especially for black kids to read stories about people escaping right and into so, a world that they create themselves that is, like, free from white people and free from oppression, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so I think that, like, my impulse maybe earlier in this podcast has been to latch on to something like that and yeah. say, yeah, I'm going to give it a thumbs up. But I think overall, I didn't actually like this book. And so I'm going to give it a thumbs down, even though there's those things that I and enjoyed I, about it. I think I actually liked it. I think I've read more, more of the like conventionally historical fiction and liked it. While that's not like my go-to, I think I tend to enjoy it more than you. And so it, that's probably true. Um, and again, like, I'm not saying that, you know, there's something bad or harmful right. about, like, the ideas in this book. The ideas I like, I just so wish it had been... you should read it. I give it a thumbs down, but you should read it. No, I'm not saying you should read it. I'm saying that it's, like, not a very good Some book. It's not good as a novel. It. Yeah. Like, the novel qualities of it get in the way of what's good about the book. And, kind of, and kind of suffocate what's good about yeah. the book. And so... I don't want to oversell what I think is good about the book, but I don't want to deny that it's there either. And we can do our own research too, but I am curious if anybody's out there listening and has um, like read more research about these maroon communities and swamps or other, I don't know if they existed yeah. in other contexts. Yeah, they did actually. The, the one and only time that I had heard of oh, this. Did you and hear I, about this? This was actually before I read the book. I listened to this podcast about, they called it a maroon community. It was off the coast of Maine. Oh, okay. Um, but it was not escaped, um, it was not escaped slaves in the sense of what it was here. It was freedmen basically being given 
land that they thought was um uh like un you couldn't grow things on it. Mm-hmm. It was like an island off the coast of Maine that was basically a rock. Mm-hmm. Um and they built a community there and they called it a maroon community because they would harbor people um who were maybe like not so um you know legally designated as okay. free. Um but yeah, I didn't but, know that this was a thing that happened within the South. I didn't know that this was a thing that even happened beyond what that, that one podcast I listened to about the, the I, I don't even remember the name of that community. Right. So if you have resources for us that you can point us to, please let us know because we're interested in knowing more. Um, There's something else I was going to say. Um, I lost it. But anyway, okay. let us know. Well, anyway, a house divided tonight. We didn't talk about what we want to do next before this podcast, which we, we usually do. Didn't. I think we should do um, Dr. Doolittle. The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle. Yeah, because we're back um, to the 1920s, guys. We are wrapping back around to the Roaring Twenties, roaring with books that don't look very appealing to me. Although I have read The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle when I was a right. child, and I remember enjoying it. And I have not. Uh, Hugh Lofting, 1923's winner. So uh, join us next time for that. Also, um, I believe before that, we're going to have a special episode that's kind of wrapping up the year 2023 Yes, uh, in reading. So, um, coming soon. Coming, coming soon and not in two months like this one was. No. Um, so anyway, um, this brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget, if you want to give us feedback or just share your thoughts, um, newberrychronicles at gmail.com is our, is our email address. I know what I was going to say. Okay. Last thing I want to say is I think it's really awesome that Amina Lutman Dawson said, hey, these books don't exist, so I'm just going to write them. Be the change you want to be in the world. And she did that in two ways, um, with her history book and this one, and I think that's really awesome. So Again, I respect the intentions behind it. I'm with you. I'm just adding and. All right, all right. On this tense note. On this tense note. Uh, We will end this podcast and see y'all or hear y'all. You'll hear us um, (laughs) in the 2023 recap episode. So thanks for listening. Bye.